We're going to get back into the book of Romans. And uh, I kind of had fun with Annie this, uh, this Sunday as far as song selection. If you look at the title of the message, you try to f- find out songs that could fit with that title. Human choice and divine wrath or God's wrath. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll choose some songs for that one. I think she shared that with Mark and he just kind of giggled and laughed. <laughs> yeah, you got a task there, Annie. Good job. Well, we're going to look at a difficult portion of Scripture that in itself, right there alone, would probably cause us to walk away all doom and gloom. But we don't take Scripture out of context. <laughs> and you don't just take one portion and, and on your way. you got to take it all together. But unfortunately, in some ways, we've got this one portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. But keep in mind the rest of Scripture and the good news, that there's hope. Keep in mind that there's hope. There was a sign uh, in an especially scenic part of Michigan that asked a very provocative question. It said, why live in God's world without God? (laughs) Good question. Of course, millions of people choose to live in God's world without God. Many identify themselves as nature worshipers. I just got to go out in nature, I'm good, and I can worship that. Others boast self-sufficiency, saying they don't need God. I got what I need. I have everything I want. An alarming number of people snub God's moral laws and flaunt sexual immorality as well. They, too, choose to live in God's world without God. But their choice is costly. It rejects God's truth and it incurs his wrath. In today's message, we'll see that God indicts all who reject him and his laws. This is why we can value our choice to believe and obey God. It is a choice, and it is why we worship him as creator and loving father. You could probably remember incidents in your childhood when your mother gave you a choice. You made the choice, and then she said, Are you sure that's what you want? And you insisted in strong and impatient terms that it was. That's what I want, emphatically. And when you got what you had asked for, you were almost bitterly disappointed. It turned out to be completely different from what you had expected, but you were stuck with it. Your mother insisted that you live with your decision, hoping to teach you responsibility. Now, that that is a mild parallel to what Paul illustrated here in today's scripture. He identified sin as refusing to accept the truth about God and substituting our choices in God's place. But he pointed out that while our choices start the process, we cannot dictate where it ends. Three times he spoke of God giving us what we want, all of them to our loss. And that is divine judgment. And only God's grace can rescue us from our choices. Brianna is learning to drive. That's a warning for you all. (laughs) And Becky and I have the distinct privilege of helping her. Now we've done four, and so far so good. I haven't heard of any tragic situations that have gone on. Most often, though, Becky rides with her as they travel back and forth to school. But there are times when I, have, when I get to um, <laughs> ride with her. 
But she told me when I ride with her, she messes up more. And I'm just sitting there, not doing anything. Granted, I did honk the horn one time when she was sitting at a red light. I shook the car. We, were, we weren't going anywhere. It was just... Anyway, okay. But anyway, she gets all flustered when I'm sitting there in the passenger seat doing nothing. And, uh, you know, getting all flustered and all that. And, you know, because she, she rides with mom more than she does with dad. And dad seems to be the person who's going to catch her with something and come down on her and all that. I was the embodiment of her conscience in its most uncomfortable form. For many of us, thoughts of God's judgment or wrath bring those same kinds of feelings. And so we avoid thinking about it, God's judgment, God's wrath. We need to come to grips now with what Paul said about God's wrath or judgment, as uncomfortable as it may be for some of us here. We're going to see how hopefully how a God of love can also be a God of judgment. Now, that sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? A God of judgment is a God of love. A God of love is also a God of judgment. I believe you need to hear that. Turn with me, if you haven't yet, to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 18. And we're going to take this portion of Scripture that uh, takes us all the way through the end to verse 32. Now, in spite of its many contributions to Western civilization, Rome was a godless city. As the capital city of the ever-expanding Roman Empire, it magnified the sinful hearts of the people who lived there. And by the end of the first century, nearly a million people resided there who were highly highly diverse in in respect to their, their ethnicity, to their religion, also to their socioeconomic standing. Extreme violence was dominant in the city's chief entertainment called the Gladiator Games. And ever since Augustus, the the emperors had all insisted that the people worship them as Lord and God. And many of these emperors were notorious for their immorality. And some, such as Nero, at the time of Paul's letter to to, uh, the Romans, actually became symbols of wickedness, not only for their time, but for history itself. And Paul wrote to the various Christians who were living there to encourage them to live godly lives in the midst of that culture. He had never personally visited Rome, so this was was the only church Paul wrote to that he had not founded. Nevertheless, he still felt a strong responsibility to ground their faith on the solid foundation of the gospel which he declared was the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And this salvation he described as righteousness, or being right with God. And he declared that it was by faith from first to last. So this message's text begins Paul's argument regarding the nature of God's great work of salvation. And to do this, he began with the nature of sin. For you can't fully understand salvation until you understand from what it is you are saved. You need to understand. So that's where we begin. So in verse 18, we're going to take a portion here of 18 through 25. And I'll break that up as well too. But in this portion of scripture, we're going to see that we exchange God's glory for the self-made. We exchange God's glory for the self-made. 
Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since, that, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without Excuse. We'll stop right there for a moment. So here, this portion of Scripture, this section of it, we see God's wrath against wickedness. Paul began by declaring that God extended His wrath, in verse 18, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God is not a pleasant thought. (laughs) Maybe that is one reason why it is seldom preached these days. But Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American revivalist preacher, was not afraid to preach his now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, if you haven't read that one, there's one to get a hold of. And, uh, where pe- people said that they felt as if the flames of hell were licking their heels as he spoke. That, that would be a service for you that day. Whenever we imagine the wrath of God... We must carefully distinguish his anger from human anger. There is a difference. God does not lose control of his temper and fly off into some irrational rage. God's wrath is part of his love. Picture a mother who did nothing as her young daughter was about to use a hairdryer in the bathtub. Would the mother's uncaring attitude in the face of danger demonstrate love? Of course not. Also, how would a loving mother respond if an older daughter was about to drop a connected hairdryer into the bathtub where young sister is is bathing? A loving parent always responds strongly when she sees her children about to hurt themselves or others. Why is that? Because she does not like or love her children? No. No. Because she does love them. And in the same way, God shows his love for his children by showing his disgust for our thoughts and our actions that hurt ourselves and hurt others. The word wrath means anger, and it is the strongest of all passions. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 3 of Ephesians, that they were by nature objects of wrath. John declared in chapter, John chapter 3, Verse 36 said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's important to remember that God's anger is spoken of as being directed toward godlessness and wickedness, as verse 18 in Romans says. And it's not toward sinners themselves. He hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And that's, that's a phrase that's overused a lot, but it's really true. And only God can do that in the perfect way. We can try. We have difficulty sometimes. But God hates that sin, but he loves the sinner. You see, God has revealed his best plan to humanity, a set of instructions by which he knows we can best interact with him as well as interacting with other people and ourselves and and the world around us. He has given His law not to make our lives miserable, 
but to, give, to guide us toward the best way to live. But when people reject God's best plan, turning instead toward godlessness and wickedness, and also leading others to do so as well, God must react strongly. He must react strongly to demonstrate his concern for the world he loves. The reason God reveals his wrath against sin is because through it, people have suppressed the truth about God that he has already shown them. He wants that truth to get out. That word suppress is a strong word that means to hold it down even to the point of smothering it. One commentary says, it suggests a man deliberately holding a living thing in an alien atmosphere until its life is stifled. The word suppress says that we can drown the truth in an ocean of evil. Paul declared that uh, in verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. In fact, God has given a measure of natural revelation to all people. Through his creation, he has plainly revealed his eternal power and divine nature, as verse 20 tells us. You know, any trip to the mountains, any trip to the, to the coast, you will immediately generate, it will generate a sense of, of awe and wonder in you as you watch the, the ocean or as you look at the mountains. They cannot claim God never revealed himself to them, for he does so continually in all he has made. God will ultimately hold all people accountable for the light they have been given. Everyone. That's why I encourage every one of us to walk in all the light that God has given you. And through nature, he has stripped away their excuse that they didn't know there was a God or that they had an obligation to worship him. God has made it known. Look with me in verse 21. Reading through to verse 25. Here we'll see that there's a rejection of God's truth. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. We'll stop there. Knowledge of God is more than academic. It is moral. Even though people are able to see God through creation, they often fail to worship Him for who He is. And the problem is that in verse 21, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden ultimately resulted in the impairment of human reasoning and will. We are still able to see all God has revealed through nature, but we see it through a distorted lens. And as a result, we often arrive at totally different conclusions than God intended. And in verse 22, Paul remarked that although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And the word fools indicates someone who is without discernment or understanding, uh, basically senseless. 
The psalmist in Psalm 14, verse 1, says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul told the Corinthians that man's wisdom is sometimes utter foolishness and that God has actually chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And tragically, tragically, these wise fools often lead many others who believe them to be wise right into their folly. One example of our foolish reasoning is exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So they end up worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Idolatry was common in ancient cultures, as well as more primitive ones in our world today. The Egyptians, for instance, worshipped cats and snakes along with the sun and the moon. The Canaanites worshipped bulls. <laughs> Some Native Americans worshipped eagles and bears and a host of other animals. The Romans, along with worshipping their emperor, had a pantheon of gods they worshipped that resembled men. In modern cultures, there is an increasingly popular return to paganism and the worship of created things rather than the creator. creator. Just consider the Wiccan religion that does that type of thing. Nature worshiping. And even while most modern cultures still do not engage in blatant idolatry, they are often guilty of substituting something other than God for the objects of their worship. Whether that object is nature, politics, money, a sports hero, a sports team, a musician, maybe even their own job, maybe even their family. In essence, as verse 25 says, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator Himself. Now, am I saying it's wrong to watch the Super Bowl today? No, I'm not. Keep it in perspective. Keep it in perspective the different things that you enjoy. Don't let them get in the way of your relationship with God. And whenever God is rejected, black becomes white and white becomes black. It just gets reversed around. In the absence of absolutes, truth becomes relative. So people find justification for any and every behavior. And as a result, they end up worshiping themselves instead of God. We exchange God's glory for the self-made. Let me back up a verse here in verse 24. Take a section, verse 24 through 27 of this portion of Scripture. And here we'll see that there's the acceptance of impurity. The acceptance of impurity. I've already read 24 and 25. Let me scoot over to 26. Because of this, because of these things that he mentioned in verses 24 and 25, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We'll stop there for a moment. As a result of refusing to worship God for who He is, Paul said in verse 24, God gave them over 
in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The moral slide into corruption, which starts with the internal suppression of the truth about God and, and the perversion of worship, ultimately affects a person's outward behavior. You're going to see it. God does not prevent individuals from sinning, but He does not cause them to sin by giving them over. Instead, as the Scripture says, He gives them over to do what their sinful hearts have already determined to do. He allows people to suffer the natural and spiritual consequences of their chosen behaviors. It is a human choice. God allows human freedom to run its course. He is not willing that any should perish, as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says. But at the same time, He does not force individuals to be righteous. It is up to us to choose. One result of God's giving them over is sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. In verse 24. And note the various descriptions of sexual sin mentioned. Verses 24 through 27. Sinful desires, degrading of their bodies with one another, shameful lusts, unnatural relations, indecent acts, and perversion. God created human sexuality to be expressed between one man and one woman in a committed relationship of marriage, as Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says. Any expression of sex outside of that covenant is a perversion of God's created order and a degrading of the holy temple in which he desires to live. Another result of God's giving them over is shameful lusts, found in verse 26. Paul reported that both women and men were guilty of exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. This practice of homosexuality was relatively common in Rome. It's reported that 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome engaged in homosexual and bisexual sin. Homosexuality is very hotly debated these days, as you well know, especially regarding the origin of these urges, nature versus nurture. What, which is it? And Paul spoke of them here as simply unnatural relations denoting a purpose that goes back to creation, where God created Adam and Eve sexually distinct from one another and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. He joined them together in one flesh to form a family where their children would be nurtured. Whatever else homosexuality is, it is certainly unnatural from a, certain, from a creation standpoint. And while shameful lust in verse 26 refers to the unnatural desires people have toward one another, one another, indecent acts in verse 27 refers to the way they actually act on those desires. As lust is fed, it eventually finds expression. Remember that. As lust is fed, it eventually finds expression. And as a result of acting out these Unnatural urges, Paul said that they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Verse 27. Sin has both natural and spiritual consequences. From a natural standpoint, the penalty for illicit sex might be an unwanted pregnancy or, or a sexually transmitted disease. From a spiritual standpoint, the penalty is separation from God. 
Verse 28. <clears throat> Let's look at these last few verses. And then we'll see here that there's consequences of a depraved mind. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Wonderful list. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. A third result of God's giving them over is a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 28. Whenever people banish God from their lives, they ultimately become a certain kind of person, a depraved one. This depravity begins in the mind where reasoning has already been warped, but eventually it works its way out into every aspect of life. The moral slide into sin, which began with removing God from one's life, it eventually takes a person further and further into depravity than ever imagined. Paul's descriptions of the depraved mind and actions are discouraging at best. He described them as being, in verse 29, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. In recent days, people have begun to use the words wicked and evil once again to describe people who have no moral compass. But let me define these terms to help us understand what Paul is communicating here. Wickedness is the opposite of righteousness. Evil describes a person who is not only bad, but wants to make others as bad as oneself. Greed. Greed is the spirit that will pursue its own interests with complete disregard for the rights of others. Greed. Depravity describes the quality of a person who is destitute of every characteristic that would make, would make him or her good. In addition to the, all those qualities, people with depraved minds are also spoken of as being full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are also described as being gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Interesting that those descriptions are placed right in with all the others. Jeremiah once wrote that in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. But even all this is not enough. Paul told us, told us in verse 30 that they even invent ways of doing evil. And you probably have witnessed that and seen that already in our culture today. Not content with wickedness in its present forms, depraved minds continually search for newer and even more perverted behavior to show that God has no authority over them. They are the ruler of their own life. They don't need God. And finally, they are described as being senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Verse 31. Actually, in spite of having a depraved mind, these people have not completely lost their moral compass. They still know, in verse 32, that those who do such things deserve death. They know that. There's still within them an inherent sense of right and wrong. 
of righteousness and judgment. But people who have left God out of their lives are generally indifferent to the consequences. They don't care. They continue doing what they know is an insult to God. And they look for companions who want to share in their sinful deeds as they approve those who practice them. Is it any wonder that, as verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness? Maybe, maybe the only wonder is that God has actually put up with it for so long. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to invite the worship team up. <laughs> but I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Come on up, worship team. Though Paul was pronouncing God's wrath and his judgment on the ancient pagan world, their sin and its devastating results illustrate principles that are completely valid for us today. Here's what I ask that you, you do. Take some time to examine your own response to God. Have you amended any of his truth in some way in your life? Have you given to anything else the total allegiance that belongs to God? You know, our society today is becoming more and more like the one in which Paul lived, alien to our way of life and hostile to biblical principles. Have you avoided being conformed to the pattern of this world, the Scripture tells us? Are you able to clarify or clearly testify to God's truth and yet be compassionate to those who trample on what you consider sacred. There's a tough thing. Standing for what is right, but being compassionate to those who don't care. If we do anything, we should be working on that. Standing firm what we believe, but being compassionate to those who don't care what you believe and live for themselves. If we aren't, aren't compassionate with them and we still stand up for what we believe, then they get a distorted view of who God is. We need to give them the total view of who God is as He is revealed to us in our lives. Yes, He's a God of love. Definitely, He's a God of judgment too. But He's a God who takes you through things. He's always with you, never leaves you, wants the best for you. We need to clearly testify to God's truth, yes, but we need to be compassionate to those who do not care what you believe. Are you there? You need some help from God with that one? Maybe you have a friend who is in danger of God's judgment and appears to be blind to it or is ignoring it. You know somebody? Pray for God's guidance. Seek godly counsel. Figure out how to witness to that person. Not Bible thump them. Don't do that. Witness to them. Share God's love with them. James chapter 5, verse 20 says, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Be the person that God can use in that, that person's life to bring light to them, revelation to them, realizing there's a God who loves them wants to have a relationship with them. That relationship is through Jesus Christ, who we celebrated right here, what he has done for us. Be that person 
who could be that messenger. And the good news, the majority of this time has been <laughs> talking about pretty much negative and bad news. The good news about it is that there is still hope. There's still hope for those people you know who are living in such a way that Paul has described here. There's hope for them because as long as they have breath, there's hope. And so as you know them or you're connected with them in some way, be that messenger of hope. Let them know. Show them. If you need to come and pray for someone, if you need to come and pray for yourself, the altar's here for you. Come meet God. Pour out your heart to Him. We're going to sing a couple songs. And as, as we do, you're invited to come and pray.